Victor Valcor. He is a professor of geriatrics at University of California, San Francisco. And his, even though his background is in geriatrics, his special interest has been in neurocognitive activity. Of course, that's a challenge as all of us get older. But the question has been, do people with HIV, even those who have well-controlled virus, um, are they having subtle uh, neurocognitive uh, impairment? And if so, how do you measure that? What's the cause of it? How, is it different than normal neurocognitive decline that might happen as we get older? And so we're going to have, uh, we invited Victor here to talk about that with us. So the title of this talk is Emerging Issues in HIV, Aging, and Cognition. Victor, welcome. Thanks. Good morning. Thanks for uh, coming, uh, waking early, coming to this talk. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. As uh, Mike said, I'm a geriatrician. It's a little bit, um, coming at this from a little bit of a different angle. But I've been studying cognition in HIV since about 2000 and went back and did a second training in neurobehavior uh, as the first non-neurologist to do a two-year fellowship in neurobehavior. So I'm pretty seriously interested in this topic and um, maybe some would say even excessively serious. Um, and, and delighted to share some of the information with you. I don't have any disclosures. Uh, so the, the idea today, this is always very difficult. I'm asked to pick some topics that I'd like to speak about. And I speak quite a bit about the topic of cognition. And I guess I get a little sick of hearing myself talk about the CPE. The, uh, many of you probably know the CNS penetration effectiveness score, how to change antiretrovirals when people have cognitive impairment. Um, even though the data are very murky around that, and I have some very strong opinions about what to do, and in fact, often what not to do in such cases, and I'm happy to talk to anybody who might have specific questions about that. But for this talk, I thought I would choose some of the other emerging issues. One um, is, is to speak about this asymptomatic impairment. Um, this has become a little bit controversial in the field in the past couple of years. A large survey uh, completed in the United States identified a lot of, of this entity, uh, yet um, clinicians tell me often in clinics, I have so many symptomatic things to worry about. Why are you giving me asymptomatic things to worry about? So uh, I, I, I'd like to speak about that myth a little bit. Uh, speak a little bit about the role of comorbidity and cognitive impairment. And I thought I would uh, speak about what I have a lot of passion about, which is will our older patients develop Alzheimer's disease either earlier, more rapidly. I imagine many of the clinicians who see patients have now seen a case of Alzheimer's disease in an HIV patient. I've seen a handful of these cases. Um, some of them have been my patients. And, uh, and there's some intriguing anecdotal issues that have come up in these cases. But uh, I think the patterns are not as clear. I'm going to start with just a couple questions. The first one, what percentage of new infections, again, new infections in the United States are among, occur among patients who are over 50 years of age? Please give me your best answer. What percentage of new infections in the United States occur among people who are over 50 years of age? We'll ask this again at the end of the talk to see if anybody was listening. Uh, good. I'll save the answer until later. I've got another question. HIV patients are at accelerated risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. Yes or no? True or false? I was very surprised about the response I got from this uh, the last time I used this slide. Let's see if DC is different than Atlanta. 
a little bit different. This is good. Okay, so we're going to try to address some of these issues in in the talk today. I'll start by uh, well another question. Sorry, this is this is a little bit different than the question I just asked you. This one is what is the prevalence of cognitive disorders um, in the United States? Uh, less than 20, 30 to 40, 50 to 60, or over 70. Uh, go ahead and give me your guess. I'm basing this on a national survey of 1,555 patients across centers in the United States, patients access, accessing care in the clinics. 30 to 40 percent is the answer. Now, I'm going to give you the answer to this one, I think even in, uh, in, well, not the next slide, but in a couple slides. So let me start by telling you how we define cognitive impairment in HIV. In 2007, a bunch of us got together to try to understand how we can better define cognitive impairment. It hadn't been done uh, since 1991. Essentially, things didn't change a whole lot. There's a mild form of, of disorder, which now is called mild neurocognitive disorder. Some of you may recall it used to be called mild cognitive motor disorder. The motor was taken out because often the mild impairment doesn't have as much motor component as the more advanced disease. Uh, HIV-associated dementia remained an entity. So I'll show you uh, in the next few slides that it's not very common anymore. And we chose to add this last category called asymptomatic neurocognitive impairment. In some of the work that I'd published in 2004, we had already used this uh, entity. We called it neuropsychological testing abnormality uh, without symptoms. And in this, uh, these final categories, we, we gave it a formal entity, which uh, again has become very controversial. In a sense, the mild impairment is based on neuropsychological testing not doing well and having mild impairment in function, whereas dementia, you do much worse on the neuropsych neuropsychological testing, and your functional impairment is, of course, worse. The only difference with asymptomatic impairment is that we do not have any symptoms. So this is somebody who's in a research study. You do testing. They test very abnormal. They didn't say that they had any symptoms. What do you do with these cases? You in the clinic would say, well, they don't have any symptoms. They're, they're normal. I would never have looked. But we, we were kind of stuck with this in the research setting, and it turns out to be quite informative about the disease, as I'll point out in a bit. In general, the, the, the frequency of these disorders mirrors this slide that I often use, where HIV-associated dementia is, is quite rare these days. And, and by rare, I mean probably 2 to 3 percent. In the national survey that I pointed out, I think the number was exactly uh, 2 percent but certainly less than 5%. And this differs quite a bit from what we saw before treatments were available. The mild neurocognitive disorder is another subset of all those that are impaired. And it turns out the asymptomatic impairment group is the largest group. These two pie charts are from various studies, one being done in the era of uh, antiretroviral therapy. That's on, the, on, on your right. On your left is a, is a summary of what cognitive impairment looked like in national surveys before we used antiretrovirals. You can easily see that the purple parts of these pie charts are exactly the same size. So this is telling us that the rate at which people test normal on neuropsych testing in cross-sectional surveys has not changed despite using, cognitive, uh, despite using uh, CART, or, uh, highly active antiretroviral therapy. This is striking. And, uh, and, and actually quite unexpected. And I think many of you would not have expected this either. What you can see is the proportion of this pie chart that's yellow, the proportion that are demented, is markedly decreased. But the number of people who are impaired remains the same. So it, it leads us all to wonder, you know, why is this occurring? 
The very first question I get from almost any audience is, well, if you give these tests to you know, an average population in DC, you're going to find that a certain number of these patients won't do, or people will do poorly even though they're normal. And you're absolutely right. If you give any test, a set of tests, to a population of people without disease, 12 to 15 percent will, will test impaired. And, and it's probably just not doing well on tests, maybe never having done well on tests, maybe sleep deprived, like I feel a bit today, maybe you know drinking too much last night. I won't go into that for myself. But these things can all affect how people will do on cognitive testing. So there's normal variability that occurs. But we're talking in the range of 15%, not 50%. So this is clearly different than what, you, uh, what one would expect to see. The cognitive impairment that we see in HIV continues to be this conglomerate of three major areas in which the brain thinks. I think a lot about everything that the brain does, not just the memory, even though my patients will almost always come in and tell me my memory isn't very good. It turns out that the HIV is almost a classic neurobehavioral motor disorder because it can encompass symptoms that cross all three of these major disciplines of neurobehavioral disorders. Those of you who saw cases of HIV, advanced HIV, uh, before we had antiretrovirals can remember there's a slowness in processing, slowness in movement, slow, slow gait, uh, slow movements, the finger tapping, the group pegboard tests that we used to use. So definitely, a, clearly a classic uh, kind of motor component. This has not gone away. I've seen cases referred to me who people think have developed Parkinson's disease, but in fact they're cases where HIV hasn't been well controlled. So HIV, because of its propensity to, to injure certain parts of the brain, not uncommon that you can develop some subtle motor problems that in some cases can be more advanced. And I think people understate the degree to which HIV affects the brain in the behavioral component. There have been case reports of mania presenting as an initial presentation for HIV. We know that it can affect the brain in these ways. We know that our patients are depressed. We can, always, we can often find a litany of reasons why somebody might be depressed in their circumstance, but I, I'm here to tell you that that's not the only part of it. It's, it's quite likely that the inflammation that's occurring in the brain, even with treated HIV, is having an impact. And we know this because you can measure certain parts of the brain that that subserve things like apathy, drive, and you can find differences in volumes of these brain structures correlating with the degree to which they have some of these behavioral symptoms. So, uh, and then I'll, I'll say in the last part, the memory is not the, the cornerstone of what we're seeing for cognitive impairment in the current hour. Your patients may say, Doc, I just can't remember things, but I'm sure it will resonate with all of you if you ask a few follow-up questions. They actually do remember but they can't remember two or three things at the same time. Very classic symptom for me is that they can't multitask. I used to be able to do three things, four things at the same time. Now I have to focus on one thing, and I can do it very well. So they've lost this level of efficiency, often because of kind of multitasking and attentional components to it. But encoding memory, as we see in Alzheimer's disease, doesn't tend to be impaired as much. It's a little bit of a, a subtlety, but I'm sure that resonates with those of you who see patients in clinic and see this. Another aspect of the syndrome which is unusual is that it fluctuates. You would never see this with an Alzheimer's case. Um, you can see some fluctuation, particularly with some of the neurodegenerative syndromes in the Parkinson spectrum, but for the most part, cognitive diseases that we're used to seeing are relentlessly progressive. Whereas in HIV, what we see is a lot of fluctuations that's occurring. These data are from a cohort I ran years ago that were published with the diagnostic criteria in 2007 where you can see 
Within one year, some patients improved, some people uh, declined, some people just fluctuated up and down over uh, through each of the six-month periods that we had tested them. Another study done by, uh, in the ACTG network and published by Kevin Robertson showing the rate of impairment in people who are initiating antiretroviral therapy not too far off from what was uh, seen in the national survey. And I can tell you the national survey may have a little bit of a higher number because not all patients there were on treatment. But what was really quite striking here is that if you followed people 48, after, 48 weeks after they initiated treatment, there were even some new cases that developed. This has led some people to wonder if the antiretrovirals themselves are contributing to cognitive impairment, but it also tells you a bit about the fluctuation that's inherent in this cognitive uh, disorder and that some people may get worse and better over a period of time. So for me, when I see patients who come in with cognitive disorders in HIV, and I've done the complete workup that I care to do, I try to reassure them a little bit that I've been doing this work for a decade. I can count on one hand, maybe two hands, how many people have progressed to uh, a fulminant dementia. Not many. And that what I often will see is that there are good days, bad days, good months, bad months. And I, I can't tell you how often patients say that's exactly what happens to me. I can tell when I wake up in the morning if it's going to be a good day, I go out and do things. If it's a bad day, I try to reschedule myself so that I'm not involved in some of these things. But in general, this fluctuation may continue without the relentless progression that you'll see in diseases like Alzheimer's disease, which I think in some ways reassures patients, although my hands are tied. I'm usually sitting there saying, I don't know what else to do. We've looked for all these things, uh, all these treatment options. I've done all that I can to maximize your HIV. Um, so uh, in some ways, there's a plus and a minus to how I, I end those conversations. These data are also from the charter cohort of over 1,000 people. And I put this slide up to, to tell you that, in fact, if you're doing an outstanding job in your clinic and your patients are clearly adherent they all, have, uh, they all have CD4 cell counts that are in the normal range. You can see that the risk for having cognitive impairment is relatively low. It's in the 20% range. This may be what you're thinking about when you say, you know, I don't see cognitive impairment. But in patients who are very, very adherent and don't have a lot of comorbidities, they have uh, a good CD4 cell count, their viral loads are undetectable, these cases don't have the tremendous amount of cognitive impairment I've been pointing out in other in some of the uh, previous slides. However, when you start adding confounding factors on, and, and by these in this paper they mean having a lot of cerebrovascular disease, a lot of cardiovascular comorbidity that could be seen in the brain as well, having hepatitis perhaps, using uh, recreational drugs, being on medications that can affect cognition. We just uh, submitted a paper on polypharmacy in our cohort over 60. It seems that uh, just about every patient is on an inappropriate medication over the age of 60 with HIV, often anxiolytics or uh, benzodiazepines of some type. Um, these, all of these things together bring the cohort of, uh, of patients you may be seeing in clinic up into these areas. So the confounding factors are really driving a lot of the cognitive impairment that we see. I don't mean to tell you that HIV is not contributing to these cases. I'm a firm believer, and I'm not going to show you the data that makes me firmly believe this, but we can find HIV markers that clearly correlate to cognitive impairment. So I don't want you to leave here thinking that HIV is not the cause in many patients, but I want you to know that there's a large component of, of confounding that occurs um, in these patients. Okay, I don't want to run out of time, and, and I tend to, to, to chat a lot, 
So I'm going to move right into this asymptomatic neurocognitive impairment and ask you a little bit about uh, what it means. Now, you should know the answer to this question because I just showed it to you. According to a recent paper uh, of uh, community-dwelling HIV-positive patients, what percentage of them have asymptomatic neurocognitive impairment? Wait, what percentage of patients with cognitive impairment are asymptomatic? I'm sorry, the way this is written, it's how many, what percentage of patients with hand have asymptomatic impairment? And uh, the majority is correct here. If you look at the calculations really carefully, 50% of patients are impaired, and among that 50% of patients, particularly if you go into the non-confounded cases, about 70% are asymptomatic. That's phenomenal to me. So that, that tells me that about two-thirds of the patients with cognitive disorders in HIV are asymptomatic. So many of you may say, great, you know, I'd have too many things to worry about already. I'm glad it's asymptomatic. Let's move on to something else. I want to tell you that that's probably not true. And, and, and the reason why that's probably not true is that if you look at their testing on, on these cognitive tests, and this is just a sample from a cohort I have in San Francisco, you can see that the degree to which they're abnormal, the degree to which they're below the zero line, really doesn't differ whether they're symptomatic in the S category or asymptomatic. So the degree to which they're testing poorly on neuropsychological testing doesn't seem to be a lot different. So we took this a step further, and actually the people from San Diego, UCSD, have done a much more uh, detailed uh, look at this than we have, but we did it with this driving simulator. We also had them read maps. We had them do finances just to ask, can they do these tasks of everyday functioning that are important? And you can see that the, the slides, they almost superimpose once again, that in fact the degree to which you have symptoms does not seem to be an indication of how you're actually doing in day-to-day -day life. To me, this is not surprising. If you think about Alzheimer's disease, many of you have family members with Alzheimer's disease, perhaps, or friends, or certainly acquaintances that you've had. You wouldn't think of asking them how their memory is. If you ask them how their memory is, they'll say, fantastic, I'm fine. If you ask them if they're taking all their pills, they'll tell you, yes, I take all my pills, doctor. But if you ask them, well, what is the pill you take in the morning? They have no idea. How are your children? My children are fine. Now, remind me, what's the name of your oldest son? No idea. We don't tend to go into enough detail with our patients to understand how much symptomatic problem they're having. Yet in HIV, this is the cornerstone of how we assess cognitive impairment. Why? Because often our patients don't come in with proxy informants. They often come into clinics by themselves. They don't come in with their husband and wives or children like Alzheimer's patients do. We looked at this carefully in, um, I'm sorry, these data are from San Diego showing uh, precisely the same thing, the degree to which employment capacity is abnormal and symptomatic versus asymptomatic. And I thought I had a, I guess it's a few ahead, I'll, I'll save what I was going to say. We looked at this with brain integrity measures. We, we did imaging on all these patients who are asymptomatic to determine do they have abnormalities in this deep white matter integrity regions that are affected by HIV. And in fact, you can see in these orange areas, they're, they're present, they're broad. So I think that this asymptomatic impairment is really quite a, a challenge. It correlates to the degree to which they don't do well on cognitive testing. That's what this nice line here is showing, that in fact the abnormalities in the brain uh, correlate to functional, uh, functional testing. And the San Diego group has pointed out that if you're asymptomatic, you're more likely to convert to symptomatic within one year's time. Uh, these data have been touted to be progression, but I'm not certain that they actually are any progression because the degree of impairment is the same. I think it's just recognition, uh, not that the disease is moving on. 
And this is the slide that I wanted to point out. In our center, we, I see patients with Alzheimer's disease, Lewy body dementia, Parkinson's dementia, side by side with my HIV patients. So they all come into the same clinic. They all come into the same research clinic. We use the same battery of tests. And so we ask the question, how often do the patients with HIV come in with informants compared to the patients with Alzheimer's disease? And this is from our research center. And you can see the cohorts here in small numbers, of course. But it's, it's already you know, incredibly striking to find that we can't find the informant in our HIV cases here in the white in about uh, 15 to 20 percent of the time. How often in our other cohorts? We, it just doesn't happen. We can always get the informant. And in order to get into our studies, you have to say that you have an informant who's willing to come in or be called on the phone, and we still can't find them. This is probably not surprising to many of you, but it really speaks to this entity of asymptomatic. How asymptomatic is asymptomatic? And are we just call, calling something because we, as clinicians, can't get to the root of the problem? And I think that's more likely to have occurred. Okay, I'm going to switch my talk in the last uh, third of this just to talk a little bit about what's passionate to me, what I spend most of my time thinking about is, uh, is aging in HIV and particularly how the brain ages. This question also is different than the one I started. Careful about the wording here. What proportion of HIV patients in the U.S. are currently over 50 years of age? Good. I think uh, people are certainly thinking that things are moving up into the um, into the uh, the older age groups. I'm shocked to know that over 60 already, we're starting to approach 10% in this population. And this slide will point out what the, the frequency actually is uh, in in the different groups. If you look at the 50-year-olds, it's this group that's going up, up, up. And the number that's quoted most commonly is by 2015, 50% of the patients in the United States will be over 50 years of age. But in fact, we've probably reached that in many, many settings. Certainly in Northern California, we've been there for some time. The Kaiser system has been 50% uh, over 50 for some time. The VA uh, population, of course, has also been 50% over 50 for some time. So if you extrapolate CDC data, it'll be 2017. But people think it's more likely to be next year or 2015 for the US in general. This is not just a US phenomenon. This is happening all over the world, um, This, in particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, starting to grapple with the issue of how we're going to deal with an aging population uh, and whether they're going to have the same degree of comorbidities that we see in the United States and will have the similar uh, problems that we're having uh, starting to develop in the US. So who are these older populations? I'll point out that, in fact, there are two different populations. The most common population are those that have aged with HIV. They became infected in their 40s, now they're aging into their 50s and 60s, and living with the disease as a chronic illness. But 10 to 15 percent of new infections occur among patients who are over 50 years of age. So there's also a subset of patients who are developing or, or becoming infected in old age. The way you approach these patients, there are some subtleties that are different. Of course, prevention efforts need to be changed, perhaps for this older population. Uh, this woman that's in the slide with me from Hawaii back in the early 2000s, uh, an incredibly brave woman, like many women that I've met over my uh, last 10 or, or so years who become infected in old age really didn't think they were at risk. Uh, I'll tell you just briefly the story of a 96-year-old woman who came in to see me in the clinic and told me that she's taken on a, a uh, I can't remember the word she said, uh, a, a friend. I think she said a friend. And, and she's in her 90s, and I'm a geriatrician. I've been trained to, to 
to ask about sex, but it, I was blushing. And, and I said, well, um, do you share a bed with this friend? Oh, of course. So I said, hmm, I guess I'm, I, I, need to, I need to just buck up and ask if you're using protection. So I said, you know, do you use any kind of protection? And she said, now, Dr. Valcor, I went through menopause many years ago. I, I don't need to use protection. I think there's a sense that uh, this is not a risk. Communicable diseases is not something that need, people need to worry about in older age. And, and so using condoms uh, are more challenging, more difficult. There's a culture change that needs to occur. People don't think they're at risk. And, and this is a population that uh, we need to change our educational efforts a bit towards. But for the most part, we're looking at this population that's lived with HIV, sometimes for, in our studies, over three decades. We know this because in San Francisco, there was a study where specimens were stored in the late 1970s. And several of the patients in my studies, when we went back, they were, when somebody went back, they were HIV positive in the late 1970s. So we're, we're, we're working with people who've been infected sometimes for an incredible amount of time. Not only do they have comorbidities, they have polymorbidity, if you will. You start getting into places where not only are there several diseases that are impacting other diseases, but they interact. And, and the sum of these is more than just the sum, that there are interaction effects. Uh, in our cohort, uh, over uh, 60 from San Francisco, some of the features that are really quite interesting, we see more symptomatic impairment, not terribly surprising. When you misplace your keys and you're 50 years of age, you kind of shrug it off and say, ah, this is, a, this is probably a nothing to worry about. But when you're 60 or 65, uh, you start wondering if it's going to be something to worry about. We have to consider survival tendencies in this population because they've lived for so long. And one of the things that's been fairly consistent in the literature is that older people are more adherent to their medications and have a better uh, uh, suppression of virus, sustained suppression of virus in some of the younger cohorts. And that's held out pretty well in, in our population. In terms of cognition, all of the classic risk factors for cognitive impairment don't seem to uh, correlate. The one thing that does correlate, and I, I'm afraid I don't have time to talk about today, is this uh, monocyte effectiveness score that we've developed, where you look at how well the antiretrovirals work in monocytes, not the CPE, how that penetrates to the brain. And we've had good luck in, in uh, finding correlations in a number of cohorts about this monocyte uh, uh, penetration. So what I wanted to tell you really is what I know about whether your patient will develop Alzheimer's disease early. And if they develop it, will they have a more rapid progression? And I'll just go quickly to the punchline. And it is, uh, I really don't know. And I think anybody who does uh, tell you that they know it really uh, hasn't looked at this critically, because the data are just are not yet supportive, mostly because we don't have enough people who are in that range where they're at high enough risk for Alzheimer's disease for us to study the question. We think that there probably is some kind of a concurrent Alzheimer's disease risk that influences the brain, uh, either through APOE4 or other neurodegenerative pathways. But we also worry a lot about cerebrovascular risk, increasing the risk for these uh, populations and other comorbidities. And we've been studying it uh, a bit in, in uh, our population. I'll just point out a couple very worrisome slides that have come out in the past decade. This is one slide looking at the degree to which amyloid beta plaques are seen at autopsy uh, of patients with, with, uh, with, who die, who succumb to death uh, with HIV. And there seems to be a correlation to the degree of which amyloid builds up in the brain. This is just one example of two, three, maybe as many five studies that show a correlation not only to how long you've had HIV, but also how long you've been on antiretrovirals. 
So perhaps the protease inhibitors, some other medications are having uh, an impact. We really don't know. This is all speculative at this time, but it does not, uh, does not look uh, terribly promising. I want to say very carefully, however, that this is, this is diffuse amyloid, not the neuritic plaques that occur in Alzheimer's disease. And whether this will transform into the kinds of plaques that are Alzheimer's, we do not know. So this is just the development of more amyloid. It's not speaking specifically about the neuritic plaques. This is another slide showing basically the same thing. For the interest of time, I'm going to skip through it. Um, and then we've started to use this imaging compound called the Pittsburgh compound, which shows the degree to which there is the neuritic plaque in the brain. And so far, this is a, a cohort of younger patients in their 40, no elevated amyloid plaque uh, deposition. However, uh, San Diego has a cohort of only eight patients where they looked at people who are a little bit older and do have cognitive impairment, and, and they see a little bit of a signal, but certainly nothing for us to hang our hat on yet. And many of us have continuously shown that APOE4 is a risk factor for cognitive impairment in HIV. APOE4 is classically tied to Alzheimer's disease. But even there, there's an important caveat, because if you carefully look at the literature, APOE4 has been correlated with head injuries, it's been correlated with seizures. So it may be just something that facilitates whatever underlying disease is occurring. And we don't know whether this is necessarily going to mean Alzheimer's disease. OK, I need to sum up. I want to put some positive uh, slide up for you who are in the clinics and dealing with these patients and to tell you what I do in terms of giving them uh, recommendations. The most important thing is adhere to your antiretrovirals. Adhere to your antiretrovirals. Get on your antiretrovirals. If you're not, adhere to them. That probably is the most important thing that you can do for anybody. Uh, treatment for neurodegenerative disorders is premature. Everybody wants to try to use Aricept. Uh, memantine, these drugs in Alzheimer's disease, I'm not so, so in uh, HIV, I'm not so sure they work terribly well in Alzheimer's disease, but I can tell you that the studies that have been done don't show any support in, in HIV, so I do not use them in my patients unless I think highly that there's concurrent Alzheimer's disease. I get everybody out to exercise, get them into a regimen where they're exercising, even if it's walking, get them to a gym if I can. I think there's more and more data coming out about cognitive stimulation. I'm not a big proponent to using some of the computerized programs that cost a lot of money, but I do say, do you like to play bridge? Play bridge. Go do it three, four times a week. Go take some classes in the local centers. Do things to keep yourself cognitively active, particularly when you're interacting with other people, so you're maintaining these skills. Treat the comorbidities. Carefully look at the medications. Try to tune up everything that you can that's non-HIV. Um, and, and then make sure you're doing a good job with the HIV. And if any of you have specific questions about antiretrovirals and cognitive impairment, please catch me. I'm happy to talk to you about that. And of course, safety at home and long-term planning for patients. So in 22 seconds, I will conclude that cognitive impairment remains frequent. Asymptomatic impairment may not be all that asymptomatic. Comorbidities are important and need to be managed. There's not enough data to firmly conclude risk for Alzheimer's disease, but a lot of us are looking at that question very carefully. And uh, let me repeat these last two questions. What percentage of new infections in the US are occurring among those who are over 50 years of age? You should know the answer to this now. Great. Some progress. I guess this is the, I think that's the chain. Let's do the last one. <laughs> <laughs> I should put another response here. Say, I don't know, right? So HIV patients are accelerated risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. What do you think from what I said? Do you, are you worried about your patients? Yes. Or are you not worried about your older patients getting Alzheimer's disease? 
where do you, I hope you choose, uh, I hope you choose true because I know there are people from NIH here and this needs to be uh, studied. Oh, false. <laughs> I think we don't know and this is a critical issue. I mean, if patients with Alzheimer's disease either develop it earlier or have faster progression, this will be a big challenge for us to manage in the clinics. And now that uh, such large numbers are over 60, I think it's a, an increasingly important problem. Thank you so much for your attention. I went over by one minute. Apologize. Thanks very much, Victor. You can see that the speakers are in fear of Donna Jacobson, who is the <laughs> executive director, because she makes sure that we uh, follow the agenda. And actually, we all ought to give uh, Donna a uh, round of applause for organizing this. So, Donna, great job. <laughs> and it's her birthday today. Yeah, so. <laughs> um, th there are a couple of questions. First of all, uh, Victor, um, a question that I'll ask you. Is it should clinicians be managing, uh, should clinicians be measuring neurocognitive function? Because you didn't say that you could prevent it or you could do anything about it. So should they be measuring this? Well, we, we did a review of the literature back in 2011 and published it in CID. And we made an argument that uh, if you follow the standards for typical screening recommendations, that you, you, you fall short with this quite a bit. Um, but another group published uh, just in the last couple of months this mindfulness group saying that, yes, you should be testing everybody, and you should test them every six months. It's not terribly practical to do that. And in fact, if you try to find a, 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 an instrument to do that with, they all fall short. Um, certainly, if you're using the mini mental status examination, you're, you're just wasting your time. It's not a useful test. And the Montreal Cognitive Assessment Test may be working a little bit better, but it still falls short. So in my mind, I'm a little worried about making this blanket recommendation, even though you know it has a negative nutritional value for me, meaning it won't put food on my table. But that's my table. But it, and, and so I have to be careful that I'm not kind of imposing my thoughts on it. I, of course, test everybody, but they come into my clinic for those reasons. So. Well, just, just uh, for a, a one or two word to answer. So if you can't <laughs> do anything to prevent it, and you can't do anything to treat it, why should you test it? Well, you can do some things to prevent it. I mean, there are certainly all the comorbidities. This is the same argument people made about Alzheimer's disease a few years ago. The safety, I mean, if people aren't driving correctly, they're, they're at risk for financial injury. There are certainly things you can do to make quality of life better. So I, I don't fall into that argument very well. But I don't like recommending something when I don't have a great test for that, when there are competing uh, interests in the clinic. And, uh, and this may not be at the top of the priority. So making blanket recommendations is difficult. But I disagree with you that there's nothing you can do. Um, if that's true, that's how we'd be looking at most dementia cases, which is not true. If it's your mother, you want to know early. You want to make sure that they're not burning stove pots, leaving water on, buying five vacuum cleaners, driving. There are so many things we can do to keep people healthy and happy that don't necessarily involve giving them a pill. OK. And again, if anybody wants to ask a question at the microphone, you're welcome to do that. Uh, there are a number of questions on the cards about whether it makes any difference whether you use antiretrovirals that penetrate the CNS versus those that, quote, don't. So this is a very difficult question, and I have an entire talk on it, and I'll try to say it in two words, right? I have two words. So <laughs> That's uh, really like simple answer. There's absolutely no doubt that there are cases where there's CNS escape, where there's virus that develops in the CNS compartment that's detectable when it's not detectable in blood on people who are treated with antiretrovirals. These are relatively rare conditions, and they all respond to changing antiretroviral therapy. Uh, we would like to know how you can identify those cases, 
The case reports don't give us enough information, but they tend to be a little bit different. And if you'd like to look at those case reports, I can either send them to you, you can get a feel for this as well. But they're relatively rare conditions. Empirically changing antiretrovirals to improve cognition has failed in two studies, both that failed to enroll completely. But among the, the, the studies that were done uh, in the within that study, even though they failed to enroll, there was no benefit to empirically making the change. I have concerns about that when you have somebody on a good regimen that they're tolerating, they're not having a lot of complications, and you say, I'm going to empirically change this, and suddenly, and I've done this myself, I caused anemia in somebody with critical aortic stenosis. And I didn't make them cognitively any better. So I think the data are not uh, there to, for empiric changes, but there are clear cases, so it's a little bit of a mixed issue. And if you have somebody who's not on antiretrovirals and they have cognitive syndrome, it's fairly clear that you should put them on something that gets into the brain a little bit better. So that's another kind of caveat. So it's, it's a very complex issue um, that's hard to speak about in just one minute. Okay. Michael? Yeah, I, I think that that would be a little bit strong a statement. What's been consistently correlated is your nadir. So if you have a very low CD4 cell count when you start, regardless of where you are now with your CD4 cell count, you're at higher risk. That may answer your question a little bit. But um, I, don't, I don't know if I would interpret, yeah, I think I'd be over-interpreting it. I, I think antiretrovirals, uh, probably, I mean, they are protective. They have to be. If you have people on antiretrovirals, the rates of uh, developing it are much less. But no one's looked at it uh, directly. Question over here? Is there a way to Can you just identify yourself? Oh, I'm Nazia Kazi. I work at the VA in Washington. So my question is, is there a way to tease out the various forms of cognitive impairment? Because I have patients who have a bad encephalopathy, um, and sometimes it's not quite a bad encephalopathy. Yes, the MRIs are fine, but mm. No, I love that question. I love that question because I spoke about it last Friday. Um, the overlap with hepatic disease and HIV is very challenging. And uh, a hepatologist told me that everything I, in fact, it was at one of these, speech, these talks, he said, everything you told me about HIV looks like minimal hepatic encephalopathy. And when you think about HIV patients having massive gut loss of, in, in, of, in, of uh, uh, immunity and, and translocation of microbials, you add on to that a liver that's not working very well, I think that they're at a higher rate of having whatever pathogen that we're probably not measuring causing a fluctuating encephalopathy in the same way that HIV looks like. So we don't have good markers for minimal hepatic encephalopathy, and we don't have good markers for HIV. I don't know if we can tell the difference. So I take the broad view and, and just try to maximize the management of both of them it, you know, in terms of the clinical standpoint. And I want to look at this a little bit from a scientific standpoint, because I, I agree with you entirely. I think uh, there's, there's uh, risk for overlap of both of them. Nazi, do, do you have any follow-up to that as a hepatologist? Do you, uh, anything you differ with? The rifaximum is only indicated, I believe, shouldn't, I should be careful because I, there may be FDA people in the audience, for recurrent uh, encephalopathy. Uh, and it's quite expensive, so it's been a little bit of a problem. And, and the lactulose, nobody wants to take it. 
So I end up in a lot of difficulty when I think this may be a component. The challenge with minimal hepatic encephalopathy as well is, from what I understand, there's, there's not a good marker for it. You can do a flicker test or you know, a number of cognitive tests, but in fact, by definition, at least some of the definitions that the clinician doesn't realize is there, and when you test them, it's there. So it, it looks a lot like what I'm talking about with asymptomatic impairment. A lot of challenges in diagnostic in both. Uh, last question, Dr. Iran. Yeah, I was just going to make a comment uh, on the issue of co-infection with hep C. And um, I had a patient just recently who had genotype 2 and was fortunate enough to get on the Gilead Zipasivir study. He was co-infected, cured. And the thing that he came in, he said, I can think clearly now. I mean, he still has his HIV, he's, you know, but, but it was dramatic. It was, it, it was, I was, I was amazed at, at how. So, so you think there's a neurocognitive uh, I think there is. problem with HCV? Anecdotal cases are always, they have such an impression on us, but they're, they're anecdotal. I have a, a case that was treated with antibiotics for a parasite, and he was clear as a bell. Uh, during those two months that he was on, you know, the antibiotics, and it made me think a lot about this mental hepatic encephalopathy, and then some skeptic told me uh, that, in fact, that he was probably told not to drink alcohol while he was on Flagyl, which, which is, you know, probably true as well, but your point is well taken. It's complex, and I think there are components of both of these. So a very practical way to approach this is really try to maximize treatment of all comorbidities. Yeah. Well, Victor, thanks for a very uh, intriguing talk, and... Uh, we look forward to hearing more in the next few years.